0: Well, let me invite you straight away to grab your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to simply raise your hand right where you're at in your seat or in your home, go find one. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to bring you a Bible. If you're looking for 1 Samuel, you're going to find it one of two ways. At the beginning of your Bible is a table of contents that will give you uh, an order of the books as they are written in the Bible. Look for 1 Samuel and it will give you a page number. Or you can start at the beginning of your Bible with the book of Genesis, and then you'll have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. What I'm about to say is crazy given the year that we've had, but we are two weeks away from finishing 1 Samuel. And I have been inspired by the number of people in 2021 that have emailed me or that have caught me in the hallway or even at the grocery store to tell me how the Lord has been working in their lives, how he's impressed it upon their hearts, all the more to grow in their faith because of a study of 1 Samuel. I've been challenged by the number of people who said, I, I, I've never read the Old Testament before we got into the book of First Samuel and this has been incredible for me. And I hope that your heart has been encouraged and that you've been inspired and that you have been growing in knowledge and in faith through this series. If I were to give today's message a title, It would be from ruin to restoration. From ruin to restoration. Have any of you ever had a situation in your home or maybe your vehicle where you had to bring in an organization or a group to help you mitigate something that had been ruined? Has that ever happened to you? Two years ago, I'll never forget the cry that I heard from... My wife, Stacy, it was one of those, get down here right now. No one's dead, but if you don't get down here, you will be. (laughs) And so I ran down the stairs and into our middle child, Ryan's bedroom. And what I saw was what looked like a massive pimple in drywall. It was not a little spot. It literally took up about a four foot by four foot section Where the drywall was hanging down and at the heart of it was a little tiny drip of water. I did what any ignorant individual (laughs) who knows nothing about construction would do. I took a butter knife and I poked that hole. I walked out, covered from head to toe in water, debris, and white. The carpet that we had had put in the year previously was completely covered in water, debris, including insulation, and white. My daughter's dresser and her clothes and her bedroom furniture And everything else that you could imagine was covered in water, debris, and white. And I looked at the situation, and I'm not a smart man, but I do know that water will eventually descend to the lowest place. And so I looked up in the ceiling, and we figured out quickly that it was coming from the kitchen, we ran upstairs and checked all of the different faucets. We went to the bathrooms just to make sure it wasn't coming from a pipe in the bathroom. We could not figure it out to save our lives. We pulled the dishwasher out. We pulled everything out. And I called a really good friend of mine who knows way too much about everything in life. And I said, man, I cannot figure this out. It's, it's just, it's crazy. We popped the membrane and now water is not coming down anymore other than, fr- I don't get it. He said, well, did you look behind the refrigerator? And the refrigerator was underneath where the refrigerator sits was dry. And I said, well, no. And he said, well, pull it out. And as I pulled the refrigerator out, there was water in the corner of the the space that the refrigerator took up. But there was no water coming from anywhere. Until I started to push the refrigerator in, there is a small plastic Shutoff valve for the ice maker, which by the way, I've never met a good ice maker. <laughs> a small plastic shut-off valve in the ice maker that had, and I literally mean, I mean quite literally, a pin hole in it that when I pulled the refrigerator out, it created enough tension that it sealed the hole. And as soon as I pushed it back in, it was, I, I don't even know how to, it was a mist, But over the course of several days, maybe even weeks, that water collected and left unattended created absolute ruin. We had to bring in several people to help us at different levels along the way. Had to bring in a friend of mine who does electricity so that we made sure that none of us was going to die in the process. And we had to cut out the, the drywall. We had to pull all the insulation out. And then we had to pull the carpet back. And we had to take all the furniture out of the room. And my daughter was misplaced. And we brought in these industrial sized fans. And we got carpet cleaners. We broke a carpet cleaner. Had to get another carpet cleaner. Brought that in. And we're trying to get all the water up. And now we're working on mold mitigation. And then then we had to begin to piece it all back together, which included making sure all the electrical was run appropriately and putting in brand-new insulation. And did I mention that we fixed the, the shut-off valve? We did that first. So we fixed this $3 part that caused... A lot more than $3 in damage. And we began to piece it all back together, put up new sheetrock, and brought another friend of ours in who did the texture on the ceiling. And by the time we got done, we put the carpet down and it still crunches in some spots because of where the drywall was hardened in the fabric of the fibers of the carpet. And we began to piece back together my daughter's room. What started off as something that was so insignificant ended in absolute destruction. And it was with the help of others that we were able to experience restoration. I don't know where you're at in your life or your faith. But I know that there are far too many of us walking around today with pinhole-sized leaks that we are ignoring and not paying attention to because they seem so insignificant. My question is, is that water starting to build up? Maybe, maybe the membrane is already developed and it's just sagging, waiting to be popped. Maybe you're afraid to face it because you don't know what mitigation looks like. Maybe you don't know how to restore what's been ruined. Well, today my hope and my prayer is that through the next few moments that we have together, we're going to learn. We're going to learn by others' examples and we're going to learn from the word of God how we as individuals and as followers of Jesus can move from absolute ruin to complete restoration. Father, I pray you now for the time that we have together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Pastor Steve left us off with the understanding that Saul's days are numbered. He went to extreme to find out what was next. And we're going to see the conclusion of his life and the chapter 31, the book of Samuel, First Samuel next week. Following that, we see in verse 1 of chapter 30, and we're going to bounce around a little bit today. If you want to ready your Bible, we're going to jump to Psalm 55 in a few minutes, and then we're going to end our time together in Romans chapter 5. But before we do that, we're going to go verse by verse over the next 30 verses in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. David... Is who we're gonna read about and his men, and what's happened after he was told by King Achish to go home that the other Philistines weren't comfortable with David and his army doing battle with them. And so David is now on his way back home to Ziklag. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They crushed Ziklag. And burned it to the ground. When I first read that, I had this image in my mind. If you've ever seen the movie with Russell Crowe, and he comes in and his town is in in shambles. It's literally burned to the ground. There's nothing left of it. Why can't I think of that movie? Gladie, that's what I said. It's in complete ruin. Verse two tells us even more. Of this devastation, this ruin. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. Well, that's important that we understand why the author of 1 Samuel includes these details. The Amalekites were a nomadic people that were known for being ruthless. They're the first obstacle that the Israelites will face as they leave. Egypt in the hand of slavery under Pharaoh. As they are weak, as they are out-resourced, the Amalekites are going to come up from behind as the Israelites are making their way out. And they are going to attack the elderly and the small children and the women. And they're going to go to battle against Israel. And if you know the story, Moses is going to be taken up to this top of a mountainside and he's going to look out over this battle that Joshua is going to lead with Moses or two men, Aaron and Hur. And as long as Moses' arms are held up high in the in the air, kind of like what Pastor Caleb asked us to do moments ago when we were leading and when he was leading us in worship, this this sign of surrender is what this is. It's a sign of complete surrender. As Moses' hands were elevated in absolute surrender, the Israelites were winning the battle. But when Moses would lower his arms, the Amalekites would take over and begin to conquer the Israelites. And so using the resources available to them, they brought over a rock and they they placed it in a position where Moses could still see out over the battlefield. But they sat Moses down and and, and Aaron and Hur assisted Moses by helping him keep his arms elevated. How many of you know that sometimes when we're in the middle of the battle, the best thing that we can do is admit that we're tired. Too many of us want to put our axe to the grindstone and keep forging ahead. Weary and tired from the fight. If we would swallow our pride and invite others into the battle with us, they could help us win the war. And it goes back to what I've been saying for years now. That one of the tools and tactics of Satan himself is separation, which leads to isolation. And isolation ends in devastation every single time. So as we put our axe to the grindstone and we try to forge ahead on our own, what's happening is we feel like we're the only ones facing a battle. We feel like we're the only ones at war. We don't want to burden anyone else. We're embarrassed by the war that we're facing. And so we won't ask for help. And we we feel at times that, that we're winning the war when our hands are up, but there are moments, there are spaces in our lives where we begin to lower our arms down and we begin to lose the battle. And I don't know what that battle is. It could be any number of things. What is the battle you're facing right now? But here's what I know to be true of every single battle, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, psychological, financial. In every battle, we are better together. We are better together. And just like as the case was with Moses, we all need an Aaron Aaron and a her in our lives to help us fight the battles. So here we learn about the Amalekites, this wicked, wretched people that were known for being ruthless. Verse 3, when David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families. How many of you know that just hits different? As a parent, when you see your children go through something... How many of you parents would much rather you go through it than your children? How many of you have ever said, I wish it was happening to me. If I could just spare what they're going through, I would take it on. I've been there multiple times in my life. I was with my wife Stacy yesterday. We were watching soccer outside at 8.30 in the morning, which is basically sinful when it's that cold outside right now. And we're watching our six-year-old daughter, Brianne, play soccer, and I out of nowhere, the thought just occurred to me that my daughter has twice been hours and quite literally from death. One time because of uh, pyloric stenosis, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, born at birth, two weeks old. She ended up in the hospital for six days. They ended up doing surgery to correct it. And the other time was two years ago, February. We were in Florida. She had a rhinovirus that attacked her lungs. Both lungs collapsed and began to fill up a fluid. And she was minutes from death. And I looked at Stacy and I said... God, just look at what she's gone through and where she's at today. Praise God for that little smile. And man, she's a beast on the soccer field. I just love it. But I remember in both of those instances at two weeks old and then at three and a half years old, having that argument, God, take me. I, I would do anything to to spare her from this pain that she's in. It just hits different when it's our family that's going through it because you feel so helpless like you can't do anything about it. David and his men realized that his family and their families have been impacted by this raid. Verse 4 says, they whipped until they could weep no more. Have you been there? Have you ever been so emotionally overcome that you cried all of the tears you could cry and you had nothing left in you? It took everything out of you. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. Now look at verse 6. This seems quite odd. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. You see, there's two things we need to look at here. Number one is what kind of men he has. It says that they were all very bitter. They were very bitter about their circumstances, but here's what I know about Character and circumstances. Who you are as an individual will lead to how you respond under pressure. These men weren't just bitter because of the circumstances they were facing. These were bitter people. Remember when we go all the way back to David off on his own and now people begin to follow him. And he starts off with just a few hundred and then it grows to 600. What kind of military might did David have? Well, these were misfits and outcasts. These were fugitives on the run from the law. These were family members that had been exiled out of community with others because of their relationship to David. These were farmers who came at it with pitchforks. And they were just this merry band of misfits. And they were already bitter because of how their lives had turned out. And bitter people respond in bitterness when... Pressure is applied. Now here's this situation that is a very difficult circumstance to deal with. And they respond in a manner that is consistent with their character. They're bitter. And the second thing that we know about bitter people is bitter people lack the ability or the desire to accept culpability. But instead they look for a scapegoat. Everything that happens to them is everyone else's fault. These individuals who are bitter, they're angry about life. They're angry that they have been forced out of where they had lived. And they're living in exile. They're living in in the deserts. They're living off of the land. They're semi-nomadic people. The only thing that they seemingly have going for them is their family. And now, in a moment, that's been stripped away from them. It wasn't really a moment. It was three days. But over the course of three days, that's been taken from them. And rather than accepting any responsibility for their choices, they look to David to be the scapegoat. They make it his fault. But look at verse six, the last verse, or the last part of it. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Would you do me a favor? You're going to want to underline or highlight that. That's critical to this text. But I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 55. Psalm 55 is a psalm of David that is consistent with how David laments the occurrences of his life. Psalm 55 gives us... Direct access to this introspection that is David's lament of his own circumstance and situation. In other translations, the last part of verse 6 of chapter 30 of 1 Samuel says that David encouraged himself. That he found strength in the Lord and he encouraged himself. How is that possible? Well, look at verse 55, excuse me, chapter 55, verse 1. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my cry for help. Please listen and answer me, for I am overwhelmed by my troubles. My enemies shout at me, making loud and wicked threats. They bring trouble on me and angrily hunt me down. My heart pounds in my chest. The terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me, and I can't stop shaking. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would fly away and rest. I would fly far away to the quiet of the wilderness. How quickly I would escape far from this wild storm of hatred. Confuse them, Lord, and frustrate their plans, for I see violence and conflict in the city. Its walls are patrolled day and night against invaders, but the real danger is wickedness within the city. Everything is falling apart. Threats and cheating are rampant in the streets. It is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. Let death stalk my enemies. Let the grave swallow them alive, for evil makes its home within them. But I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me. How can you say that with such confidence in the middle of all of life's circumstances surrounding you, you ask? Well, look at verse 17. Morning, noon, and night I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. He ransoms me and keeps me safe from the battle waged against me, though many still oppose me. God, who has ruled forever, will hear me and humble them. For my enemies refuse to change their ways. They do not fear God. As for my companion, he betrayed his friends. He he broke his promises. His words are as smooth as butter, but in his heart is war. His words are soothing as lotion, but underneath are daggers. Give your burdens to the Lord, and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. And here it is, verse 23. But you, O God, will send the wicked down to the pit of destruction. Murderers and liars will die young, but I am trusting you to save me. This psalm, though not a direct parallel to 1 Samuel chapter 30, at least not that I can tell, is a lament that we see often presented by David as he reflects over the course of his life and how he's managed, how he's mitigated the circumstances that have overwhelmed him. As I read Psalm 55, I begin to identify with those feelings of fear, of anxiety, of being at a place where I'm likened to shaking because of the transgressions in my own life, the burdens that I feel like I'm bearing. And in the middle of that, we asked the question, how can one have so much confidence in God when we're facing such deep devastation? And the answer is that time and time and time again, God has proven trustworthy. We know it's true that God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the creator and the author and the perfecter of life. We know it's true because it's in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. Its entirety is in the word of God and it states it consistently and consecutively. We believe that the word of God is inerrant, that it proves true without any error. And as we read that and we see the promises of the Lord over and over and over again, one of the ways that we can take courage, one of the ways that we can be encouraged is when we're facing the most difficult of life's circumstances, when we are literally looking at ruin. Keep that in mind. David is staring at torched soil. Everything that they had built up as an infrastructure for their community had been burned to the ground. There is no bleeding of sheep, there is no laughter of children, there is no cooking of wives, there is no community taking place because all has been stripped away and this is now barren land and in the middle of life's devastation without any guarantee up until this point, without any guarantee that they will be returned to David safely and his men, that restoration will be possible. David looks at this situation and now his life is in danger because his own men are casting stones, looking for a scapegoat and ready to kill him. David says with such confidence, I find my strength In the Lord, anything else is an empty well. If where we are looking for our sustenance, for our strength, for our encouragement is in any well of this world, it will run dry and it will leave us empty, including the people that we are closest to, the people that love us most. They will disappoint us and we will disappoint them. There is one true source of joy. There is one true source of completeness, of wholeness, of entirety. And that is the Lord. And so when you look at your circumstances, when you see all that feels like is surrounding you, you can go to the wells of this world and be left longing for more. Or you can say in the middle of all of it, without knowing the outcome. That I will take courage and I will find my strength in the Lord. I want you to know this morning that I believe that there is only one source of true peace. Shalom. Entire and complete peace. And it's not based on how you feel. And it's not consistent with your checking account. And it's not dependent on your spouse. And it has nothing to do with anything that this world has to offer. The only source of absolute peace is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. In Jesus Christ and him alone had multiple conversations over the last two weeks with countless individuals, and I literally mean countless, from educators to doctors to business owners about all that is going on around us right now. and What's happening in our country and all of our liberties that are being stripped from us. And there are strong opinions in this room right now are strong opinions about everything. But the one thing that we all must agree on is it doesn't matter if you're red or blue or if you're right or left or where positionally you stand on the vaccine, whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or any of it. In the end, what we can all rest assured in is what Peter says, that we are temporary residents and foreign aliens in this place. That this is not our home. That does not mean that we turned a blind eye to all that's going on around us. But I don't find my hope in whether or not the vaccine works or doesn't work. And I don't find my strength in whether we have a Republican president or a Democratic president. What I find my hope in is in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's it. I will not lose another moment of sleep over things that are beyond my control that are not eternal. What I know is that Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles of many kinds, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This world will hate you, but remember, it first hated me. If you want to live, you must be willing to lay down your life. Luke 9.23 says, anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross daily and follow me. To take up a cross is a symbol of death. And to think that I'm just absent-minded emotionally, or that I just am a hope well or a wish well, you would be naive. I have a wife and six children that I look forward to living life with every single moment of every single day. I don't want my time this side of heaven to be short-lived. But more importantly than my comforts here On this created planet is my eternity and the eternal souls of those that God entrusts to me. So don't ask me my opinion on the vaccine. Don't ask me my opinion on politics. Because what you will hear from me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all these things that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end. That is the conversation worth having. For all of my Republicans in the room, I love you. For all of my Democrats in the room, I love you. For every one of you that has the vaccine this morning, I love you. And every one of you who are opposed to the vaccine, I love you. But more than anything, Jesus loves you. And that is our call and our commission. David says in the middle of all of life's craziness, everything has been stripped away from me. I have nothing. Still I will find my strength in the Lord. May we all rest in that peace. But that peace is only possible... When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Verse 7. Then he said to Abiathar, the priest, the one that had escaped Nob, the only one left, bring me the ephod. The ephod containing the Urim and Thummim, these two stones, black and white, that would give direction from the Lord. So Abiathar brought it. And then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. I want you to pay attention here. We've been five chapters now where there has not been a recorded conversation between David and God. David has been over a year living in Philistine country in Ziklag. And during the course of that time, we have every reason to believe that David has been backslidden, that he is walking not consistently with the Lord, but he's doing his own thing. He's lying. He's manipulating. He's, he's, he's raiding and killing And he's doing so to build his own status, to to secure his own kingdom. He's doing so to bless his own people. But then he's going back to King Atish and he's lying. He's manipulating. he's, He's working his plots and his plans. But it's in the middle of the most devastating moments of David's life that he is brought back to the place where he seeks the Lord's face again. And somebody here this morning needs to hear this. The devastation that you might be facing right now isn't about the punishment, it's not about some sort of uh, evil ploy from God to get your attention, it is an opportunity for you to trust the Lord with all things. It's in the middle of life's craziest circumstances that we cry out. You see what I've found is that when everything is going well for us, we have a propensity to become apathetic. When our bank accounts are where we like them to be, and when our health is what we want it to be, and when our relationships are functioning the way we want them to function, and when life seems to be going along quite nicely, we become apathetic. We don't need God. We actually tell God, hey, listen, I got this. Thanks, big guy. I appreciate the help up until this point, but I'm going to just live my life right now. But it's in the moments of devastation, in the circumstances where you're at the bottom of a barrel, and there's no well left to draw from in this world, that we cry out to God, save me. It's that, it's that moment that is recorded in Matthew when Peter is invited to walk outside of the boat and on water and he takes a step and then another step. But then the circumstances surrounding him, the, the wind come up and it starts to beat against his skin and the rain comes down and it's coming in sideways and the, the waves are rocking that he sees these circumstances and he cries out, help me, save me, Lord. And Jesus will reach down and he'll snatch Peter's arm and he'll pull him up. And he'll ask him, why did you doubt You have such so little faith. But he will restore him in the middle of that. And what I want us to glean from that is that it's okay to be at the bottom of the barrel. Not that any of us desires to be there. But it's at the bottom of the barrel that a lot of times we're more willing to wholly surrender our hearts to Jesus. But here's the other thing I want us to pay attention to. All of the circumstances surrounding David and his 600 men's lives, this ruin that they're looking at, it's not any punishment of God. This wasn't God smiting the people. It was a byproduct of the choice that David made by getting his 600 men together and for three days going down with King Achish of the Philistine army and putting on a a facade, a front to say, King Achish, let us fight on your behalf. David was so impressed with himself and wanting to present well to King Achish that he left the women, the children, and the livestock to fend for themselves In the wilderness. This wasn't God's punishment on the people. This was a natural byproduct of the choice that David had made. And I think we need to be careful when we start blaming God for the things that are happening to us. And begin by looking in the mirror and asking, what have I done that has led to this? God himself says, when tempted, no one should blame me. I didn't bring this to you. I can't have any part with evil. But here's what I know, that even in the bottom of the barrel, where the circumstances are overwhelming because of the things that we've done, the byproduct of our choices, and we're living in ruin, there is still hope of restoration. That deserves an amen. I'll wait. There we go, now we can preach. Verse 9, David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook Besor. But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued to pursue with 400 men. Do any of you feel just too tired to keep going on? Any of you just worn out? You you feel like you need a break? And then there's others that feel like we need to keep going, but what do we do with the people that need a break? And it says here that David just kept going. What I love about this... Is at the beginning of verse 9. It says, So David and his 600 men set out. He asked of God, God replied, and the direct response of David and his men was obedience. If you can, I would like you to write these four letters O I O S above set out. Obedience is our success. Where is David going? We don't know. Who is David attacking? We don't have any reason to believe in Scripture up until this point that he even knows that it's the Amalekites who have attacked him. Does David know which direction to go? No, but he received the word from the Lord and so it says he set out. How many of you have received a word from the Lord but you're still sitting on that word? You want more clarity. You want more direction. You want more details. And you say, well, I'm just a planner. Verse 11, along the way they found an Egyptian man in a field... And they brought him to David, and they gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights before long his strength returned. This right here seems like a coincidence. What we're going to learn is it's actually providence. But here's the thing I want to point out. Listen, pay attention here. David and his men are on the lookout, actively pursuing whomever has ruined Ziklag and taken his wife and children. If we're that desperate in the middle of the craziest circumstances in our lives, can you just be honest right now and answer this question? Would you stop and take the time to feed a hungry person? Some of you are so busy running errands, from one place to the next, that you don't even take the time to pay attention to the person who's standing outside with a sign that says hungry, homeless, helpless. Some of us are so busy that we don't even have the time to help our spouse who's waving a white flag saying, I need help. Because we're so busy about the things that we want to be about or the things that we think are important to us. I certainly am among that counted in that category. If I'm out, look, you take my wife and kids and see if I stop to help anybody. I would be so myopic so focused on the circumstances in front of me that I doubt I would even pay attention or notice a homeless person and yet here is this man and he's homeless and his men bring him to David and this seems to be circumstantial but it's going to prove to be providential and it says that David took the time to feed him and to give him water and to give him some figs and some cake and to restore him Friends, I want you to read James 1.27. James 1.27 says this about religion. This is true religion, authentic religion. Not coming to reach church at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning to sit underneath an amazing worship band or, or teaching or, or feeling comfortable in our confines in this, in this brick building, this 33,000 square foot brick and mortar facility where we feel comfortable. I praise God that we have access to these things. We are a really kind quite unique world. Worldwide, And I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't look at this begrudgingly. I'm a byproduct of this. But this isn't religion. This is just something to facilitate the community of Christ. True religion is caring for the least of these, the orphans and the widows. James 1.27. That is true religion. It's not how much you can learn, how much you can memorize, or how much you can recite. True religion isn't how good you are with apologetics or with evangelism. True religion isn't the number of certifications you have, or even in my case, the number of degrees I have, or ordination, or years of experience, or any of that. True religion is how we care about the least of these. How's your religion? How are we doing in that category? I love this. This man circumstantially yet providentially brought before David. And so David says, to whom do you belong, verse 13, and where do you come from? David asked him, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, he replied. My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. Look at, the, look at how the Amalekites view life. You're sick, you're holding us back, they leave him there to die. Verse 14, we were on our way back from raiding the Kirithites in the Negev, the territory of Judah, in the land of Caleb. And we had just burned Ziklag. You're going to learn about self-control here in just a moment. David is talking to a man who has literally participated in the most devastating moment of David's life. My 600 men would have had to pull me off of that guy. I would have reached in his mouth and grabbed the bread back out. David says, verse 15, will you lead me to that band of raiders? And the young man replied, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then then I'll guide you to them. So he led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah, including Ziklag. Verse 17 tells us that David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout the night and the entire next day until evening. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back Everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men, they drove ahead of them and the other, other livestock. And they declared, This plunder belongs to David. It's not that all the possessions belong to David, but this was a a way of saying that, hey, look, David has won us into victory. And all of this is because of David's leadership in our lives. But we're going to see even greater leadership in verse 21. Look at this. Then David returned to the brook Besor and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go fight with him. They went out to meet him, David and his men, that is, and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and their children and tell them to be gone. David had every right and reason in the world to be dismissive of these 200 men that had followed David for some time now, but got to the space where they were too exhausted and unwilling to continue the fight. David, as he comes back, doesn't flaunt his wealth. He doesn't say, look what I have and you don't. He doesn't throw it in their face. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't ostracize them. He doesn't make less of them. The Bible says that he greets them joyfully. Now David's got peer pressure. 400 of his men that went to battle with him, look at the situation rightly so, and say, don't give them anything. They don't deserve a lick of it. What did they do to earn that? What have they done to deserve this? Just give them their wives and their kids and get out of here. We don't even want them in our communities. We look at this rationally and on the surface and according to our culture and contextually, which one of us can't not only identify with this, but sympathize with this? Yeah, we're the ones who did all the work. It was our resources. We put our lives on the line. Who are they that they should have any freedoms or any liberties or that they deserve anything? But look at David's response, verse 23. David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. Right before this, they said, look at all this plunder. This belongs to David. David has appropriate attribution here. He, he gives credit where credit is due. And he says, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. We look at the landscapes of our lives and we have a lot of metrics that we judge our success by. Not the least of which are trophies and ribbons. But for adults, it may not be that we get awarded with a plaque But our our bank account, our possessions, our people. We have a lot of different metrics that we use to judge our success. But are we appropriately attributing where our success comes from? Who gave you the breath in your lungs? Did we not just sing that? It's your breath in our lungs. So I pour out my praise to you only. David could have easily said, yes, look what I did. Look what we accomplished because of my leadership. But David, rightly so, gives appropriation to God and says, look, this is what God says. Going back to James, James 1.27 says a true religion is this, caring for the orphans and the widows and the least of these. James 1.17, James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift that we have, everything, everything that belongs to us, comes down to us from the father of heavenly lights. When you look at the things that God has blessed you with, do you look and see the labor of, or the the love of your labor and the sweat that you put into that, the sweat equity and the hours and the resources that, that you put into making that possible? Or can you look at that and say, praise God, every good and perfect gift comes down to me from the father of heavenly lights. When you look at your spouse, can you say, praise God, Every perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. David looks at this and instead of assuming attribution, he gives it to God. And he says, we're not going to do this. And then he goes on further. He, He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Verse 24, who will listen when we talk like this? We share and we share alike. Those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this a decree. In other words, he made it a law and a regulation for Israel. And it's still followed today. That God gets the glory. God gets the credit. And that we share equally among one another. When he arrived at Ziklag, David sent part of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends. Here's a present for you taken from the Lord's enemies, he said. The gifts were sent to the people in the following towns David had visited. Bethel, Ramath Negev, and Jethur. Aurora, Sifmoth, Estimoah, Rachal, the towns of the Jehemalites and the towns of the Kenites, Horma, Borashan, Asak, Hebron, and all the other places <clears throat> where David and his men had visited. I want you to turn now to Romans 5 as we round out our time together today. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul, who is... One of the most studied and learned men culturally in Rome at this time. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a religious leader of religious leaders. He knows these stories. He knows them well. When looking at what's fair, when looking at what we consider fair, who deserves what? Who's worthy? Of what? Paul writes to the church in Rome beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. There is no exception to that rule. Because scripture teaches that the best that we have to offer is like filthy rags. The Bible says, not one of us is good. No, not one. And so if none of us is good, and if the best that we have to offer is filthy rags, then this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we are confidently and joyfully looking forward to sharing God's glory, is a byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. What did David face? A trial, a problem, and a circumstance. And where did he turn? To God. How do we grow in our faith in the middle of trials and tribulations? Because it forces us to turn to God. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, this is not singular and this is not just speaking of some, but this is a, a wholesale, this is an enveloping statement. It's, it's plural for all of us. When we were utterly helpless, who were we? All humanity. Utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an, un, uh, for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In God's economy... The best that you and I are is one of those 200 men who are too exhausted to keep fighting. And the truth is that those 400 military men that went and fought the battle had every right culturally to be angry and dismissive of those that were considered cowards and didn't fight the battle. But the greater truth in Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand why we finish in the New Testament. Because the whole thing is tied together. This story in 1 Samuel 30 is a historical narrative that is going to lay the foundation and establish the groundwork for the trials in our lives. The absolute ruin. The the ways in which we will look to reconcile this. And the only hope. By turning to God. We know that in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, when he looked upon all that were gathered and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, through substitutionary atonement, would lay down his life once and for all, for all and for all time. For those of us who would trust in Jesus and believe in his love in our lives. You and I, the best we are is filthy rags. You and I, us followers of Jesus that have received the hope of eternity and are secured because of the price that Christ paid. We have one of two options. We can take on the attitude of the the 400 evildoers that look and say, what do they do to deserve this? We've done all the hard work. You don't think those 200 men realized as they saw their wives and children running back to them what they had left behind? Or we can take on the attitude of David who recognizes that every good and perfect gift we have comes down to us from the Father of heavenly lights. And because it's God's, who are we to keep it for ourselves? And he freely distributes it among everybody. May that be true and characteristic of our faith. May we be radically generous with the transformed life that God has given us. In every manner, speaking, I don't know what circumstance you're faced with this morning. I don't know what ruin you're looking at. But I know that the hope of the gospel is that there is restoration for all who would call upon the name of Jesus Christ and believe. And restoration looks different. But one of the things that I know is consistent in restoration is that none of us is called to go it alone. Guys, If I had to restore my daughter's bedroom by myself, she'd still be sleeping on the couch. There would still be carpet pulled back. I might have taken the time to clean up the insulation and the drywall. But we would have been looking at really nice floor joists for a long time. What I did was I admitted my shortcomings. And I intentionally invited people into my life, into my story that could help me piece these things back together. If you look around right now, that's what we're called to be for one another. I don't know what ruin you're facing, but I know that in Christ Jesus, there's a hope of restoration. There's a promise of restoration and that God gives us the gift of one another. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 12, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. May you not only be encouraged today, but may you be an encourager. In Jesus' name.